Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. What do you need? A big church? Influence? Power? All of it may be appealing, but it's not necessary. As you listen to Gary and Doug, you'll discover how to have authentic credibility that impacts people. Gary shares that his famous father didn't teach him to just work for God, but to know God, and that makes all the difference. If you want to see God's glory and experience revival, this episode is for you. After the episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit awardandseasonpodcast.org. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. We have a long history. So when I saw you've been in ministry over 40 years, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I remember those days. In fact, we did an outreach together here in Houston called Houston Outreach 1986. That's where I think we really connected even more. Of course, I had a friendship with Rick Hagens and of course with Roger and others. Really a time in my life where it really left an indelible impact and imprint in my life. And of course, I quote your family all the time now and and I really look at the history of my life through your dad, Leonard Ravenhill, of course, now you and David uh, Ravenhill, uh, and so many others that have literally had a lot to do with formulating who I am as far as my focus in ministry. And so, Gary, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Doug. So, so blessed to be with you, seeing some smiling faces here on, on board today. And uh, it's, it's always a great joy to work with you. Every, every time I'm around you, I just sense the fullness of God's presence, uh, you know, which that's what I look for when I'm partnering in ministry with people is, you know, if, if, if God be with you, then uh, I want to be with you as well. And uh, just love, love the work you're doing and the uh, impact you've had in my life and many lives around the world. So I'm really thrilled. And I say that sincerely honored to be here with you today. When I think of legacy, it's not just about, you know, leaving uh, great buildings and entities and institutions, but uh, an incarnational presence, not just for the agencies or the churches or the businesses or ministries we leave, but really the impact it has on people's lives that transform them and they become those who lead and transform the lives of others as well. And I was just thinking, as I was talking to you earlier, whenever I go to Lindale or to Garden Valley in, in that area, Tyler, Texas, there's so much history and heritage there that I feel like that's a part of my roots because I found a tribe of people, so to speak, you know, it's 12 tribes of Israel, but I found my tribe, so to speak, especially when it was, I was working a lot of street ministry back in those days, in the early eighties and taking lots of people off the streets, homeless people, runaways, drug addicts, gang members. And I can relate to teen challenge or relate to Calvary commission, relate to uh, the passion for God's presence and not losing that calling of being a tangible expression of Christ in the midst of seeking the deeper things of God. How did that in your life, obviously growing up in that region and that, and with all those ministries, of course, being Gary Wilkerson, the son of David Wilkerson, tell me a little bit about your journey, because I know that all of us have to have our own personal encounter with God, regardless of who our parents are or people that we associate with. And because association might get us a little bit of a credibility, but only to know Jesus is that place of authentic place of association with credibility that comes from a personal encounter with him. Tell me a little about your journey, how growing up there at the same time, how did you find your first deep encounter with the Lord? I grew up in New York, just to go way back even further than you're asking here. And I don't want to bore people with uh, my personal details too long here. But uh, if anybody who's listening has read The Cross and Switchblade that my father wrote or the book or the movie, if you'll remember part of it, you may not even remember, there was there was part where my father leaves my mother. Uh, she's nine months pregnant in, in a little town in Pennsylvania. And uh, he goes to New York City it's in July of 1958. Matter of fact, this week is the anniversary of 1958 that my father went to New York City and did a series of uh, meetings for gang members, St. Nicholas Arena in Manhattan, and uh, the Mau Mau's and bishops and other gangs were there. And uh, Nicky Cruz came that week to those set of meetings and he gave his life to Jesus. And of course, that's been a long time ago now. But uh, so my father wasn't there when I was born. He was he was there preaching to Nicky. So uh, Nikki's now 84 years old or 83. He lives here in Colorado Springs where I live. So I get to see him probably once a month and we still travel together. He still travels and preaches. Uh, I do pastor's conferences. Then he does an evening evangelistic crusade. And so we're headed to uh, Bulgaria and Greece and Macedonia later this year uh, together. So he's he's still moving on fire. 
uh, for God. And so the same week that he was born again was the week that I was physically born. You know, some people ask like, well, you know, are, are you upset that your dad wasn't there when you were born? It's like, well, number one, I, I don't remember that. So it doesn't bother me at all. And number two, I'm so happy he wasn't there because he was leading people like Nikki Cruz and Sonny Argonzoni, who went on to to start Victory Outreach churches around the world. Yeah, so it just so happens uh, the joy of my being with you here today is, happens to be my birthday as well. So I'm 64 years old today. But so it started really early on, you know, so from the time I could remember to talk and my parents taking me to church, they, I remember hearing that story and having, you know, Nikki Cruz babysit for me when I was a little boy. It was a real, it was a real joy. But then, then uh, moving to Texas, which was was quite a change. I, I don't well, know how Gary, many- I've got it. I want to add something. You brought something up about New York and your being born in Nikki Cruz coming to the Lord that week. Of course, there's so many great stories with Nikki too. And the current pastor at Times Square Church is now our friend Tim Delina. Who would have thunk it that his dad, who was the police officer that helped your dad during those meetings in New York City? would one day grow up to be the pastor that would continue the legacy of Times Square Church. Yeah, Tim and I are our best friends. I just talked to him a couple of days ago. Probably some some of those listening today, so, you know, most people that are over 50 have heard of my father or the cross and switchblade. Some, I've noticed in the church that a lot of the younger audience, 50, 40, 30, 20, you know, have no idea. We're in some negotiations right now about remaking that movie, uh, again, the cross and switchblade. So we, we'd be excited to see that that could happen again. But yeah, Tim's dad helped my father get started in New York. And we've known each other since we were both born and uh, have stayed in close contact. But, to, but to, you know, I really, I diverted there from your main question, what it was like to to be there in, in Texas. You know, it's uh, it, it was amazing to be around when I got that call of God on my life, uh, to be around not only my father, who was was a loving, powerful, wonderful father, but also a mentor he, he really raised up his children to, first of all, know God, not just work for God, but to really know him in our hearts. Uh, and then out of that flows the work. But to be around people like Rent, Leonard Ravenhill and the other ministries that were there, um, I'm still great friends. Uh, a friend of mine lives down the street here that had their ministry there as well, second chapter of Acts, uh, Matthew Ward. Yeah. Matter of fact, later today, he's taking me out for, for my birthday uh, to a um, you know, those uh, indoor, what do you call them? Like where you fall down and the, the jet air, like it's kind of like skydiving, except it's wow. inside. Like so at uh, later this afternoon, he's taking me out for that. So yeah, so some of these things and to be well, new with you today, Doug, is it's an honor as well, because it's like almost these these things that are part of our history. I remember being uh, in Houston, there is, I think it's called the Fifth Ward. Is that right? Is that still yeah. called that? It still is, yeah. I remember back, back then it was called the Bloody Fifth, but now it's such a transformation has taken place there. Okay, yeah. Back then it was rough. I remember you taking me down there, and uh, George Foreman, the boxer, had uh, had recently become a Christian, and he had started an outreach in that neighborhood to young kids, and we were partnering with them a bit. So yeah, all these things, you know, God God gives us a godly heritage, and He puts us around godly people, which is you know you mentioned Tim Delina. He he and I have this thing. We we say uh, hold up five fingers. And we say, as fast as you can, uh, name your five closest friends who you pray for regularly, who pray for you, who you're devoted to, who you can share the most intimate details of your heart, who can cry with you when you're crying and rejoice with you in your rejoicing. So we want to keep that, you know, it's not just our history, but we want to keep it alive today as well. So, man, I could go all day with stories about my time in Linda East, Texas, there of those different ministries with Keith Green, uh, meeting him for the first time and seeing such a passion. I mean, he was only a few years older than me, but uh, I was just like, man, I want to be like that. I want to have that fire. Uh, Jeremiah 29, fire shut up in my bones. That's the kind of people I was around, Ravenhill, Keith Green. So I sort of can't help but being a, a bit of a radical still, a revolutionary, still believing in the uncompromised word of God, still believing that there should be a fire shut up in our bones, still believing the word of God is not only infallible, but it's a sharp sword, uh, still believing that that the church needs a revival, a spiritual awakening of fleeing from the entertainment culture that's prevalent in churches today, putting on shows. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from Charles Spurgeon. He said, instead of a shepherd feeding the sheep, we have clowns entertaining goats. Mm. And I'm sad to say that I'm a part of a generation that has grown up more seeker sensitive, trying to make sure people were happy and, and coming to our meetings, uh, rather than the, the fire of the Holy Spirit burning sin out of our lives and uh, <clears throat> moving us to a place of peace and joy and grace and life. But uh, I'll stop. I'm, I'm already starting to preach. So. This is something in, in your podcast 
that you address some difficult questions because we find that there's so much that we've accepted and we've mingled our seeds, so to speak, as your dad would have written about in his newsletters, that we've come to the place of where who would have thought that the challenges even back then, 40, 50 years ago, now we're seeing today lived out in a very public way. And we wonder how we got here, but it really has become something that was rooted many, many years ago and still needs to be addressed today. And you brought this up that I'm for exuberant worship and I can handle all that. But I think what we've done is we begin to worship the worship more than we worship Jesus himself. A couple of years ago, I wrote an article called Inviting God Back in His Own House. And the, the point was that we're not to worship the Bethel or Bethel, which is the house of God. We're to worship the El Bethel, the God of the house. And too often we've worshiped our structures, institutions, and we've forgotten our first love. And uh, go ahead and take us there, address that a little bit, some of the things you've seen, because you do a lot of pastors' gatherings, and I had the pleasure of going to one of the ones you, you all did up in uh, Philadelphia. I think the biggest concern I have right now, of course, it's not a big issue to God. God can deal with all these things. We're ripe for revival, but a lot of times revival doesn't come the way we think. It's going to come through the shakings and getting our attention. And how do you see this, speaking in conferences all over the world and talking to pastors on a regular basis? What do you sense is happening right now? Thanks for that good question. And and I like what you're saying about Bethel, like the, the L is to be worshipped and, and not not the Beth, because that's uh that's easier for us in ministry to get distracted by our ministry and put it put it ahead of Christ himself, putting it ahead of Jesus. And so, you know, we, we have to have Christocentric ministries and, and Christ being exalted and high above everything else. Uh, you know, Isaiah chapter five, Isaiah has this, I think it's six woes. So he's preaching pretty strong. You know, he's preaching a, a Leonard Ravenhill, David Wilkerson type message, a Keith Green message. He's, he's woe is woe is this, woe is that. But then he sees, then he sees in Isaiah six, he says, you know, I saw the Lord; he was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That word "train" there is the same Hebrew word for hem of his garment. So it, it's interesting. You see Christ being so exalted that just the hem of his garment filled the whole temple. Not even his whole garment, not even his whole being. Just the just the the hem alone. Filled, filled, and and then and then there's that transition. He's no longer saying "Woe is Israel" or "Woe is the Phoenicians" or whatever. It's like "Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man unclean lips, and I live amongst an unclean people." And then the Lord says to him, "You know, who who will I send?" And Isaiah is excited. Send me, send me. You've just given me this fresh touch. I've got a message now. I'm going to go out and talk about the hem of his garment and how it fills the temple, and and he's going to bring revival across the land. Over and God says, "Okay, you can go, but nobody's going to listen to you. They're going to reject your message." And, and to a large degree, I think, you know, and I'm not a hopeless guy and I'm, I'm an optimist and I'm believing for revival and spiritual awakening, but unless there's a dynamic change in the Christian leadership in the pastoral roles, in, in the, unless there's a change in the pulpit and the preaching and the power of prayer that goes behind the, the preaching and the leadership, unless there's a dynamic change in the condition of the church in America today, there's no hope for us. We are not going to sustain the situation we're in now. If it's sustained the way it is, the, the things are going to slip off the edge. But I don't believe God's going to leave us that way. He's going to, he's going to raise up a people, uh, just as He did with with Isaiah in chapter six. He says that stump is going to have a, a a tree come up out of it. Something something new is going to come up alive in the midst of what looks like it's been cut down. Sometimes I sound like a pessimist a little bit uh, because I do honestly assess the situation, seeing the situation in the church, and I do I just. I don't mean to be offensive or cranky old man, but I just some I just get frustrated sometimes because I see such foolishness in the pulpits. So many of us we quote a scripture verse, then we go off on our, our tangent of our of our stories or our dreams or our aspirations or trying to get people to be built up and uh, fulfill their destinies. And and you know, I personally believe we need to get back to pastors and leaders who are on our knees a lot, who preach the word of God uncompromised and not our not our dreams, or not trying to help people fulfill their dreams. I want to be fulfilled with God. I want Him to be my my all in all. My, I want Him to. I don't need a big ministry. I don't need a big house. I don't need a fancy car. I don't need a successful name. I I need Jesus. I need Him at the center. And and if I have that, then I'm going to have something to say. But if 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 it's just fluff, if it's just the Old Testament prophet says, you know, what what has wheat to do with chaff? And and it's just I need to repent. And turn and say, God, I don't want chaff. I don't want stuff that could be blown in the wind. I, I want the weed of the, the full gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ this, that he's preaching. So more and more, I'm, I'm preaching uh, 
expository preaching. I just, I've turned from topical to expository. I don't think you have to do that. But uh, I heard an old preacher about maybe 10 years ago said, he said, you take your Bible when you're in the pulpit, you open up and you put your finger in it. And, and you say, look, look at this, not look at me, not look at my dreams, not look at my vision, not look what I have, you know, some clever new teaching about this or that, that everybody goes, woo, look at that. But I say, look at this. And this old preacher said, you put your finger in the word and you tell your people, this is what it says. But he says, but sometimes that finger gets tired. So go ahead and put it in your pocket. And then take your other finger out and put it in there and keep saying, look, look what the word says. And that has become my mantra. I am less interested in moving heartstring stories that bring tears or uh, comedic routines or five, five point, you know, how to's, uh, uh, you know, this, this is all I got. And when I step down from the pulpit or when I'm done with the podcast, I don't measure it by like, you know, how entertaining it was or what great stories I had, I, I, like how much of this word was put into the hearts and minds of the people that hear me. Cause in, in the end, it's, it's the word and God's spirit making that word alive. That's going to bring revival to America. And we need it. We need, we need a revival, a spiritual awakening. And you alluded to the fact the importance of our need time in prayer over the years. I just keep your mind. I hear my own words. Sometimes God has to speak to me by what I've shared to remind me of what's important. And he keeps reminding me this, what you do behind closed doors when no one else can see that determines the power of God or lack of it in public. My knee posture has everything to do with public visibility or public uh, influence. And, and I, it's not so much what I do in my prayers in public, but it's what I do on my knees in prayer before the Lord and surrendering to him. Something your, your father shared with me that I share often is I had taken 25, 27, somewhere in there of our team after you, you had started Times Square Church in New York City and visiting Timothy House and visiting other ministries, the Upper Room and other places. And, and we were staying at a, a YWAM base in the evenings, but we came and stayed near Times Square Church and volunteering and things like that. And after a Sunday service, your father had received us in, in the back and, and he just shared with me, he pulled me aside and he said, look, a lot of people want to share the message of repentance and the message of holiness, but many of them do it because it, it, it moves people. It becomes more of a, a message to, to get people to follow rather than it's really the place of being weeping between the porch and the altar. He says, before you can ever get up and share a message with the people, you better be on your knees weeping for them between the porch and the altar so that when you get up, the same message you could hear 20 times. But there's something different about the one that's been wept for for the people before between the porch and the altar with God. And I found that to be true. A lot of times you hear a lot of people sharing certain things because it's the trend. But then there are those who have been consistent to share a message that when you leave there, you go, that made me hurt so good. It's like no pain, no gain. It's like, wow, did he just correct me? It just he did it so well because there's this deep conviction. The way it's presented, it's like you don't feel condemned, but you do feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, and I found that to be true. We, we need to weep between the porch and the altar, not just to get a message to preach to people, but to get the message in us so that when we minister to people, they sense the reality of the, of the presence of God. Yeah, yeah, you're so right. To, any message that we have in our own heart or share with others can be taken you know, you can take the, the message of grace and, and, and preach it and live it and love it in such a precious way that it transforms you. But you can also get into, you know, what some people call today hyper grace, where, you know, it's the it's the antinomianism. There's there's nothing left of, of living in obedience to God any longer. And I think the same thing is true with holiness. My father preached holiness. Some of the spiritual fathers we're talking about today, Doug, uh, you know, preached a, a pretty hard message on holiness. But the same thing with grace and holiness. You can preach holiness in a way where you're beating people up. And some people love that, you know, just, yeah, just tell me how bad a sinner I am. And I feel better leaving church because you, yeah, you preached it, brother. Hallelujah. When Moses asked to see the glory of God, which is the kavod, the weightiness of God, it's kind of a sense like I, I want to experience the holy presence of God. And God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to let you see my glory and my goodness will pass in front of you. God seemed not confused. I don't use that word, but it, you know, he, he sort of mingled his words there. He says, yeah, I'm going to show you my glory, my holiness. And here it is. It's goodness. To me, when, when I, and I am a holiness preacher, but it's not sort of a uh, trying to, to beat people over the head. It, it has to combine with grace, and it, and it has to be that sense of this is the goodness of God that, that keeps me pure in a wicked generation, that keeps me uncompromised in a 
in an age where, you know, lukewarmness and compromise abounds. That's what I live. That's what I preach, you know, and for those of you that were kind enough to join today, it's, I, I was thinking as you're talking, Doug, uh, you know, like when Jesus asked about John, like, what did you come to see, you know, a man in fine clothes? Or if you came to see Gary Wilkson on this, in this interview today, I'm not going to apologize. You're not going to you're not going to hear gospel light. You're not going to hear watered down message. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's like, please, my friends, wake up from the corruption in the church, wake up from the compromise in the church, run from the foolishness, run from the hyper faith prosperity movement, run from the hyper charismatic craziness that's going going on, run from the legalism that's happening in some quarters from the church, run from uh, self-centered messages, run from the seeker sensitive. I mean, just get out of that junk and, and get back into Jesus, get back into the gospel, get back into the book of Acts and say, like, I want to live a holy life. I want to live a, a word-centered life. I want to live a prayer-centered life. I want to live a love-centered life. And and uh, just yeah, so that's that's what you got here today. And I don't I don't know if that makes some of you want to hang up right now or not. But uh, and it just makes me want to tell. I just want to tell pastors like we are living in an age where many people are losing their faith. Uh, paganism is on the rise. Horrible confusion. Romans one twenty four, I think it is, says you know there's going to be a sexual perversion, and because of that, I'm going to turn people over to their sin. And then in Romans one twenty six that sexual perversion gets worse, it gets more confused, and it becomes a homosexual perversion. Uh, and God says, I'm going to turn you over to that. And then it gets even worse. 128, Romans 128, it says, now they have a depraved mind. And God says, I'm going to turn them over to that. And that depraved mind is, I believe, where we're at now. And I don't see those as three separate things. I see them as one. I see them as a sequence that first in the 60s in America, we had a sexual revolution. And then in the 80s to, to, to now, it's the LBGQT, uh, you know, and all those letters that, that you know, that it, it turned a corner and, and God turned them over to that. And, and now we're in the depraved mind where you, where you ask a Supreme Court justice whether she can define who a woman is, what a woman is or not, and she can't even define it. That's being turned over to a mind that he calls evil good and good evil. We, we are living in, you know, what the... Scripture said, "Gross times of gross darkness that's covered the earth." Isaiah <clears throat> says that, and it almost got me to the point of giving up hope for America. It almost got me to the point of saying we are turned over to our sin. But then I was looking at the same book, Romans eight, I think it's twenty eighth chapter, from twenty eighth verse, and it uses the exact same Greek word "turned over," but instead of saying "turned over to their sin," it says that the Father turned over the Son to the cross for our sins. And so here, here you have this beautiful word picture of us almost seeming hopeless because of the vileness in our culture. And then the father comes along and says, the only one remedy for this nation that's turned over to sin is for me to turn over my son, our sins imputed onto him and his righteousness imputed onto us for anyone who has, who, who you know, and I don't, Doug, I know you're an evangelist. And I know you love that message of it's never too late for a person or for a city or for a, for a nation. And so we, but we are in that dangerous place of that third phase being turned over to the depraved mind. Jesus has been turned over and bore our sins. So we, so there's hope for America, but the church has to wake up and the church has to be on fire. That church has to have that fire in our bones. Uh, otherwise we're, we're playing games in the midst of a, a fallen world and God would rather us be awakened and, and alive in him and full of joy and life and victory that, that we could have the power to confront and contend with a culture that is departed from the things of God. A lot of things are going through my thoughts as you're sharing, because this is so right on. When I think about the extremities that we've seen in, in the world today, it's like, you know, we have people that are even in, within the church, because of obviously what happens in the church affects the culture. Oftentimes we let the culture influence the church. It should be the other way around. Rather than a swing of the pendulum, we should be the plumb line, the plumb bob. And oftentimes we just swing along with what's most popular. But you had talked about the extreme legalism and the extreme grace, the antinomianism, which I totally agree with. And I, in fact, I've really been watching that for the last 30 years, seeing that thing progressively unfold. It comes seasonally. You see it come out and it's hard because then you're called a legalist when you address it. But at the same time, we see the fruit of antinomianism. We see the fruit of the, the hyper grace. Back in our day, we used to call it you know, cheap grace. There's other things we called it, but I won't say that. 
one of the things I realized in a book I wrote on the Ten Commandments years ago is that when we think about the letter kills, the letter of the law kills, but I began to think about that, it comes in two extremes. The letter, if we go to the letter of the law, like the Constitution, which is our word, the word of God, if you go to the letter of the law without the spirit of its intent, of God's intent, we will always do one of two things with it. One, we will try to amend the truth to fit what we want, and then ultimately not even have the spirit of what was the intention of God or in a constitution of a nation. And the other extreme is that we make it so letter of the law legalistic that the the letter kills because it becomes so legalistic, there's no relationship left versus the other side, the, the extreme hyper grace that is basically amending, amending, amending just to fit our feelings, what we want, rather than saying, God, you know, I used to be in the fitness business, as you know, and back in the day, and we used to say, no pain, no gain. And I'm not, now I say, Lord, make it hurt so good. I want the truth because it's a truth that will set me free. And for me, one of the things I've done, and, and you address this on holiness, because to me, holiness is not an external piety or some sort of legalism. Holiness is an internal consecration of my own heart that says, others may, I may not. I, w- I want that place where I'm not seared of conscience. I don't want to be one who is trying to find a way to excuse and justify by excuses. Rather, I want to be justified by faith. And and so it's that place of, I want to track God's presence by this internal consecration with God that says, my life is not my own God, it belongs to you, whatever you may lead me, Lord, lead me by the into the paths of righteousness. And secondly, I want to track God's presence personally for me to walk in that kind of holiness or consecration is to walk in authentic humility, not some sort of uh, you know, false humility, uh, but a uh, humility that says, God, I, I recognize I'm nothing without you. I need you. And thirdly, to have attract his presence to, to be brutally honest with myself. You know, Second Thessalonians 2 is a great scripture. It talks about the coming of the lawless one, but it also says that even those of us can be given over to strong delusion because we did not have the love of the truth. I want to be honest with myself. God, give me a love for truth. And more than the things that I want or the things that I, that I desire in my own life, help me to love your truths because it's a truth that sets me free. And then finally, I want to be a person of honor, that I want to be, make sure that I'm honorable to God and honorable to others. Even in my disagreements and my public discourse, I want to make sure I'm civil and I'm honorable without compromising my convictions. And that's, I, so I call it my four H's. I, holiness, attracts his presence, humility, honesty, and honor. And that helps me to keep my balance or that plumb line for me to realize it's not some sort of legalism or external piety, but it's an internal consecration of my own heart. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you that. And, uh, you know, the fourth one, the honor, that, that convicts me as you say that, because sometimes the, you know, the, what the Holy Spirit speaks to you about where it grieves your heart when you see the condition of the church. If I'm not careful personally, that, you know, that can turn into exactly what you're saying. Maybe not as honorable a way of communicating that as because they're still my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, even though it it might be on the edge of something that I might consider, you know, false teaching, but yet to see anybody that's been a a blood-bought brother or sister in Christ, Andy Donham. So thanks for saying that, that, that blesses me. But just a comment too on you talk about the the things like the holiness not being external. Uh, it is an internal, and it, and it's internal because uh, I'm writing a book now on the attributes of God, and you know what I'm seeing is the things we have inside of ourselves. They're they're there because God lives in us. So I'm not holy because God, from some external point of view, tells me uh, you know really work at being doing holy stuff. It's He is holy, or He is love. He is grace. He is mercy. It's not something he tries to do. It's it's this very nature of his essence and being. And there, then he comes and lives in me. So yes, I, I do work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And yes, I strive for holiness, which I, no man will see the Lord. But the impetus of all those things is that Christ lives in me. And in me is this, this holy, loving, gracious being. And if I commune with him and listen to his voice as he leads me in the path that I should go, uh, I will move out then in holy paths. And, and even today, now I'm going to learn, okay, I need to move out in more honorable paths sometimes uh, so that I'm not so pointing the bony finger at people that I disagree with. Uh, you know, and so thanks for saying that. That's, that's a blessing. I'm one of those guys that probably with your dad and with Leonard Ravenhill, when I'd spend time, they'd point at me and say, I remember one time Leonard Ravenhill looked at me and actually had a bunch of my team the first time I met Steve Hill. I was at Calvary Commission, take a bunch of my team there, and we were having a weekend with Leonard. 
And so he kept referring to me saying, now, Brother Doug, remember that book I gave you? Did you read that book yet? And that went, I said, not yet. And he kept, throughout the time he's sharing, he goes, finally looks at me in front of all my own team. He says, you're more ignorant than I thought. I'm going, ouch. But uh, he did it in a way that I, I knew he was right. I hadn't read the things he'd given me, uh, different uh, authors and stuff that he had wanted me to read. Ultimately, I knew he loved me to tell me the truth. Yeah, that's my first uh, meeting with him. I went went to his to his house with two friends and we sat down. The first question he asked, I had never met him before. The first question he asked was, how long do you pray a day? And each of us, you know, told our little piddly thing. And he said, why are you wasting my time coming to t- and, your, and your time to come to talk to me when you could have access in the very throne room of God? He said, go home and talk to him first, then come back and we can discuss what he's saying to you. And that was like, it was a rebuke, but it was, you know, obviously I'm saying it today. 40 years later. So it was, it was a challenge as well. But I'd say, Doug, one of the things I see different in my memory of my time with like a Keith Green or Leonard Ravenhill or my own dad, you'd sit around, you know, you travel on a, a train or a plane with them, or you'd sit around a, a lunchroom, man. And there would be this such depth of, of conversation about the glory of God, the majesty of mm-hmm. God, the power of God, that there'd be a scripture that they had just read that came alive to them. And more so lately, I, I find more, it's more about gimmicks and tips and hints and new methodologies and, you know, sitting around the table, pastors saying like, well, hey, you know, we tried a smoke machine that really helped us out a lot. Or, you know, we're doing this new curriculum that, you know, and it just seems like we're in a bit of a different culture. My longing is to, to bring us back to that, not, not just to, you know, kind of reminisce and, and look at you know, like the glory days, but just say, you know, God, you can do it again. You can raise up men and women like there were that were sober, serious, full of love and joy and life. And, you know, one of the quick thing about Ravenhill. So my dad was, I think he was getting close to 50 and he had been traveling all over the world. And, and it got to the point where he was doing something he didn't do before. He's preaching the same message everywhere he went. So, you know, he'd do like an 18 city tour and have like two or three sermons that he had in his notebook. And he just, you know, he'd go to the hotel and then show up at the conference or the, the the crusade, preach that sermon, go home. And he just said he was getting dry and lifeless. And he said, Leonard Ravenhill gave him probably like 30 volumes of the, like you're talking about that, Doug, you know, the books that Ravenhill gave away. And he gave him all these, I have them behind me on my desk right now, John Owen, you know, T. Austin Sparks, these, these, these men who are so deep in the gospel, Chadwick, who... Uh, I, I read a lot of him and just, you know, on one page, he says in one page more than I could say in a year, just the depth of of the knowledge of God, the A.W. Tozer, the holiness of God, the, the knowledge, you know, and just, I, I kind of feel like maybe God is up to something really good in our generation that he's taking, taking some people and saying, I, I can take you deep if you want to come with me. Uh, I can show you things that would, you'd marvel at the things I could tell you if you'd, if you'd only be willing to just put aside you know, Instagram and Facebook for a little bit. And instead of waking up what some people call doom scrolling, looking at the bad news, come into my presence and, and know me well. And then out of that comes, that's, that's where firebrands come with a word from heaven. And I'm starting to see that again. I don't know if you are, Doug, you know, just seeing some, some leaders now just saying, you know, enough of the lightness and the fluff. We, man, we need, uh, you know, as my friend Jim Sibyl says, fresh wind, fresh fire. Obviously, your heart has always been for the next generation, helping uh, the next generation as well. And you had mentioned many people over 50 uh, don't even know Leonard Ravenhill or A.W. Tozer, some of the names you've mentioned, Chadwick and others. And I was a little concerned about that, you know, And but uh, even on the call today, I see a lot of these uh, millennial and, and next gen leaders that really are hungry. There seems to be a, there's a stirring going on in this next generation. And that's one positive side of YouTube and, and social media is that they get to be introduced. In fact, I've come across people thought that Keith Green was still around because his music is coming back out and, and, <laughs> uh, and they had no idea that your father was already in heaven and, and uh, Leonard Ravenhill. And, uh, but I was thinking about, uh, and I often refer to this because you growing up, you know, people want to use terms, apostle, prophet, you know, I'm this, I'm that. They put it on their business card. But to me, it shouldn't be about title. It's about function. Though your dad and brother Ravenhill would not go around saying, I'm a prophet. And much like John the Baptist, when they asked him, he said, no, I'm not. And yet he was. He, Jesus said he, there was no greater prophet, you know, born from a woman. And so I think of your dad and I think of, of Leonard Ravenhill truly were prophetic voices to not just their generation and to my generation, but to the future generations. And yet I look at you and I look at uh, David Ravenhill 
And you both carry that same fire of no nonsense when it comes to taking God serious Hmm. and not taking yourself so serious, but taking God serious at the same time, because you've been put in pastoral positions and much like I've had to do, I've had to pastor over the years. It gave me a different perspective, not to lose that prophetic edge of holiness, but at the same time, give me a shepherd's heart to be pastoral in the presentation of the message. I think that's been a, a great blessing to us to see you and to see David Ravenhill to carry the message, but yet through the filter of being pastors as well, I think has now helped to widen out some of the people that definitely need to find that truth. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, Doug. Uh, you know, when I was young and in ministry, I, I love my father deeply, but his message concerned me because it always seemed so negative. Like we're always in doom, always in gloom, always judgment on America. And I was pastoring a church at the time in Detroit, Michigan, inner city church where these were drug addicts and homeless kids and and prostitutes. And, you know, I couldn't preach, you know, like messages about judgment on America because they were just like, they just needed Jesus and they need to be loved. And they need somebody to put their arm around them and just say, you're going to be okay. And we're going to walk with you. So I started off with the pastor's heart. But now as I get older and, and just travel a lot and see the condition of the church, I feel like that prophetic mantle to some degree. And I'm like my dad, I won't call myself a prophet. And, and my prophecy is probably a little bit different, maybe, you know, much of what we see and when we call somebody a prophet today, it's sort of telling somebody about something about their life. And, you know, where I, I learned a little bit more about, you know, repentance and, and holiness. And so, you know, but I moved that way, but I saw in my father, the opposite, he started off as this prophet who was, you know, like preaching to the nations and repent and turn to God, or it's all going to burn. And then he started Times Square Church in New York and saw what I saw in Detroit when I was a kid. These people just coming off the street or these this this mother who's just has three kids and her husband's just left. Her. She needs the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So he became a very, I call him like a gentle giant. You know, he became such a sweet pastor. And that's where he wrote the book, The New Covenant Unveiled. It's like he was starting to see, you know, the message of grace. So we've kind of, my father and I have had interesting trajectories, a little bit different. Uh, I feel like the mantle on me now is a bit more to speak to the nation or nations. Uh, and I say that with humility on a very small scale compared to, you know, to others that have a national pulpit. But, you know, my my little plot of land that God's called me to, he, he's put that message. Uh, again, it's the Jeremiah 20 verse nine message. There's a fire shut up in my bones uh, and I can't help but speak it. It's something that, that God has, has put the coals or the altars on my lips. And so, yeah, but I think, you know, we, we have different seasons in our life. And I see, like you said earlier, Doug, I see some young people. I can see the faces of, uh, of others. I see a few people with the gray beard and the gray hair like me. And it's nice to see the cross generations here today of people because we, we're in this together. And we, you know, we're not going to bring the nation back to a, a spiritual awakening revival without the grandfather voices, the grandmother voices, the, the father voices, the mother voices, and then the young firebrand speaking the truth to to the next generation as well. Last night was a rough sleep for me because I kept tossing and turning. It's those times you, I'm not saying that every dream I have is from the Lord, but I sensed is every time I'd wake up and go back to sleep, the same kind of reoccurring dream last night. It really was just standing before a younger generation and just encouraging them that what God is about to do is multi-generational. It's going to take the wisdom and the experience of the older generation to come alongside the passion and the zeal of the emerging generation. And together, we can see dreams fulfilled and a visionary generation possessing the land of God's promises. But it's going to take a multi-generational connection that's not threatened by each other, but realize this is about kingdom, about helping to see people's lives transformed and changed. Something your dad wrote 30 years ago, he wrote an article that he used to send out every three weeks and one was about total surrender to the Father's will. And it was about crossing, uh, before going into Peniel and wrestling with God, he had to cross over a ford called Jabbok. And Jabbok meaning total surrender. And, and of course, we see the burnt offering and Levitical sacrifices also depicts a total surrender to the Father's will. But I, that's always stuck with me because, you know, I was a wrestler in high school and out of high school. And I still use a lot of analogies from my wrestling days even in personal disciplines and exercise and, and spiritual disciplines. So when I, he wrote that and talking about before Jacob wrestled with God and then became Israel, I realized it's going to take in my personal life a total surrender. You mentioned A.W. Tozier. He used to say that self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. 
And I realize that oftentimes God is speaking, but because of my self-absorption, my, my selfishness, self-righteousness, I'm veiling that place of God's presence when if I would remove those things, allow God's grace to remove those things, then I could literally really learn and grow and be affected by his holy presence. And then Leonard Raymond, of course, did the woe, low, go message. Yeah. Woe is me, Isaiah, woe is me from Amanda McLeelips. And I realized that without Jesus, I'm nothing. There is nothing without him. And it's a privilege of his calling, as David Livingston would say. It's not a, it's not a sacrifice. It's a privilege of his calling. And so um, I really sense that it's a time for total surrender, as your dad wrote all those years ago. And then something else, your dad wrote a book called, Have You Felt Like Giving Up Lately? And I can't remember almost anything in the book except for one main point, was that oftentimes it's the wrong person on the cross. Jesus didn't deserve to go to the cross, but he did. But oftentimes we stay on the cross while those who've offended us continue to go about their lives and forgot what they've done to you. But you're carrying that, that bitterness, that wound, that you stay stuck in that moment. Well, we need to get off the cross. We take up our own cross and follow the Lord. But we don't take up the Lord's cross. And so that has really stuck with me. I encourage people all the time to read that book because I believe that oftentimes we carry a burden that's not ours when we need to cast our burdens on the Lord. And, and you've written some books. And so I'd like you to share with us some of those books and some of the, the message. I know we've shared a lot today. I could go on for hours with you. I, I just appreciate who you are and not so much about what you do but why you do what you do. And of course, the legacy you carry. What are some of the books you've written and some of the things that you would encourage us today as we take this next step in a world that's obviously in crisis? The, um, the most recent book I wrote is, is called God's Favor. Uh, it was originally under a different title called Ultimate Favor. Uh, and it was my attempt to, um, you know, I, I felt there was such a division in the church between those who who preached, you know, the blessing and the favor of God, maybe you might want to call it the prosperity movement, which has some good kernels of truth within it, that God does love us and care for us and wants to bless our life, uh, and yet can be taken to excesses. Then you had the sort of the reactionary message to that is like, you know, that, that God is strict and he's a judge and he's like, just, you know, wants you to live in a cave and have nothing. And so I attempted to put a, a message together that said, God actually is a God of favor and love and grace and mercy. And he wants to bless us. And he wants to bless us with a family and he wants to bless us with a, with joy in our life. And he wants to, and sometimes there's even material blessings that he is kind enough to put our way. But the ultimate blessing was the blessing of that Moses understood when God said, you can go into the promised land, you're going to get all the milk and honey you want but I'm not going with you. And he said, no, uh, I'm not going to go then. So the ultimate favor, the ultimate prosperity is, is actually the presence of God that he goes with us. And so uh, that, that, that book was, was, was a call to the church to say, okay, yes, we can have material blessings and we can have, you know, healings in our body, but let's not forget that the, the ultimate favor of God is the cross, the burial, death and resurrection of Jesus and now we, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and we can have his presence, and, and I can have his face, I can have his wisdom of God, I can have the knowledge of God, I can, I can walk with God. So that was, uh, that was a book that uh, I wrote a while, and I was, like I said, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm writing some, some uh, uh, in the middle of a couple of books right now, just, just finished one on, uh, I'm doing a, some series on the book of Psalms, uh, some expository teaching on the book of Psalms, verse by verse, and we're only in chapter 17 after about a year now, uh, so I hope I make it through to the before the Lord comes or before I'm, I'm taken away. Every 12 chapters, we're putting a book out and eventually it'll be a series of books with, with the workbook. And so, yeah, some of that material, uh, but I'd say most of my stuff is just more proclamation. I just love teaching the word of God. I love preaching the word of God. I love challenging Christians to become the fullness. And, you know, as you said a minute ago, Doug, about, you know, I'm really enthused about the next generation. You know, not only, my, you know, some of you don't have known my, about my father, but you probably don't know my grandfather was a, a pastor as well. And my great-grandfather was a tent revivalist and his father, we're not hundred percent sure about this, but there's some, some thoughts maybe about a chaplain during the civil war back in uh, the civil war days. So many generations of Christian leaders in our family. Then my son, Evan, uh, to, to my great uh, discouragement, um, started drinking when he was a teenager and then he started smoking pot and then he started taking pills and got worse and worse. And he, he was using all kinds of hallucinogenic drugs and ended up living out on the streets and just, just losing his mind. And we just, just, uh, he would call me two in the morning and just say, dad, I'm, I'm out here in the cold Colorado streets and I'm freezing and 
where's God? I, I, I pray and I get no help. And, you know, seven years ago, he was miraculously touched by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, gave his heart back to Jesus, moved into a place of not only sobriety, but just zeal and passion for the Lord. And so uh, that's Evan Wilkerson, my son, who's now full-time ministry, uh, doing apologetics with the next generation. And uh, I think he's already, he's only been in ministry for a couple of years, already reaching more people uh, on social media than I am after 40 years of ministry. So I think there's some sharp young voices that are coming up that give me great hope for our future, that God is God is going to take the trajectory of the spiritual declension in America and turn it on its head, and that the chart will show uh, the glory and the power of God moving in our nation and hundreds of thousands coming to Jesus, uh, another Jesus movement, if we will. It'll have a new form. It'll have a new look. It won't be the same, uh, but it's going to be something. A couple of years ago, you know, when we watched TV and we saw you know, the riots on the street, like, you know, Antifa breaking windows and BLM uh, rioting in the streets. It's it's like so many people, so many Christians were like so judgmental and angry, like, oh, that Antifa, oh, that BLM, oh, the, you know, uh, you know, and I just thought back to my father, he, he would have had a very different take. He He would have said, hey, let's go to Portland. Let's go see if we can preach to these troubled kids on the streets, because uh, we believe whether it's the sexual confusion, gender confusion, or whatever it is, it's that Jesus is the answer for it. I think there's some young men and women of God, old too, that are catching on to that. It's like, yeah, if we'll return to the to the roots of the gospel, uh, we have a power that can't be thwarted. I've been praying that we would see a lot of Saul's become Paul's. In the prophetic generation, uh, you know, John the Baptist was one led the way, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. But I sense that the Malachi uh, Acts 2 mandate or word from the Lord is that there will be a, an army of volunteers for the day of his power. In Psalm 110, 110, verse 2 and 3 speaks of from the womb and the youth as well being connected to that. That I just sense in the day of God's presence and power and visitation, we're going to see an army come out of those shadows, out of those places, much like in the days of the founding of Teen Challenge, you know, when so many, and I've come across so many today that are serving in ministry who went through Teen Challenge and similar uh, uh, ministries, that it was out of that place of where everybody else gave up on them that God showed up. So I thank God for you and your, your family, the legacy that you've imparted the rest of us. Thank you for your continued investment. And thank you for setting an example, a, a standard, so to speak, a banner for us to, to be able to recognize that we can still live by our convictions, but we can also be a tangible expression of Christ to a world around us that's, that's hurting. You know, mm -hmm. um, there's still so many shipwrecked in the sea of personal despair. Yeah. Yet, uh, if we get away from our apathy and complacency, we can reach them. Amen. Amen. I would love to just pray for your friends here today. When you have an hour with people who are so kind to share their time with us, you know, just it's Doug, you know, it's the same way. Our heart is, Lord, let, let us say something or speak something that brings transformation or produces life. You know, I just, my heart longs for that, 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 that this hour was not just uh, information, but, but if there's some of the things that we were talking about today, bless you, you know, uh, you know, you know, Doug's ministry already, you may be newer to mine and we have a podcast at worldchallenge.org, some articles written, or you can sign up for our newsletter. It comes out once a month. And again, it's just the uncompromised preaching of the word of God that uh, we, we believe uh, touches lives. And, and I'll, I'll put that book together. That's dear to my heart, the list of books. Uh, I would just encourage you if you're, if you've not heard any of these authors, I, I would recommend you start with A.W. Tozer. That'll get you sort of uh catch fire for all these other ones. They, they get deeper and deeper as you go, but it's not a deep, like, that's just like an intellectualism. It's a deep, the deep things of God, you know, as scripture says, you know, that we can know, we can know the things of God, yea, even the deep things of God. And there's not a Gnosticism or mysticism. It's, it's the knowledge of the holy. And so I'd recommend Tozer, but let me, let me pray for you too. Is that okay, Doug, right now? Or yes, please. Lord Jesus, I, I bring Doug before you and I thank you for him and Jody and Jeremy and James and Skip and Ken and Mike and Darlene and Brent and Daniel and Laura and Linda. And, and Lord, there's probably others here as well today, but I just name them by name. I just, like Paul said, I mentioned you by name and Lord, there are probably other names on this, but I mentioned the names and I speak to you in the name of Jesus, be blessed, be filled with his presence, be 
I speak the power of the Holy Spirit filling your heart with every good intention. I thank you, God, for being a holy God and bringing holiness up out of our heart and into reality. I thank you, God, for the best days yet to come. I thank you for your glory shining upon us. I thank you that we're a hopeful people. I thank you that we're a joyful people. I thank you that we're an undefeatable people. I thank you, Lord, that that no power against us will prosper, but that, Lord, you're going to put the sword of the Spirit in our hand and give us truth and power and light and glory. So I thank you for that, and, and, and I bless you now in the name of Jesus, and you're going out and you're coming in. I, I bless your families, Lord. I pray for marriages. I pray for children and grandchildren, that your Holy Spirit's power, Lord, would be a keeping power. Lord, for anyone that has prodigal children, I pray right now you, that you do a quick work. You did it for my son, Evan, and you could do it for them. You can restore them. And God, I pray for the young men and young women, God, that you would raise them up to be firebrands and voices for this generation. I pray for old men and old women, God, that we realize that the, the best is yet to come. This, this fourth quarter is the time where athletes get the most intense and, and, and want to make every minute count. So we pray for us that are a bit older, God, that, uh, that we would see uh, the best season of our ministry is, is right ahead of us. And I thank you for all these things, Lord. And, and, and I pray that your, 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 uh, your love and your grace would go with us, not only today, but Lord, in this next season of our life. We give thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As Gary was mentioning, working through the book of Psalms, I'm thinking about uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And I tried to do a, a message on that chapter years ago, and I got stuck on the first phrase, the Lord is. Wow. And if you stop there and think about what the Lord is in your life in every way, the Lord is, the Lord is this, the Lord is that. I think that'll give you an encouragement today because we know the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. And so the Lord is, what is the Lord to you today? And what does you need the Lord to be in your life today? So be encouraged. Thanks, Thank you, Gary, for taking your time and being with us. And, and thank you, everyone else, uh, for being on with us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.